Well, uh, welcome. Glad again that you are here. Uh, We are going to go into part two of Hustle and Flow, this series where we're talking about how to take the hustle in your life and get it to fit within the flow of your faith. And in this series, we're looking at the letter that this guy named Peter wrote to the church. We call it Second Peter is the letter that we're going to look at. And because Peter's really this mentor for us who's talking about life and how to live. He's near the end of his life. We see Peter actually is going to die shortly after this. This is his last correspondence to the church. The Roman emperor Nero is coming after him. He's probably in jail when he wrote this. And so at the end of his life, he's looking back and he's able to say, listen guys, I get it. I've gotten it so wrong, so let me help you know how to get it right. And the reason I love this letter that we're gonna go after and we're gonna go after this conversation is ultimately because that's what all of us want. We wanna get it right. We wanna get life right. We wanna get all the aspects of life right in the season that we're in and especially to set us up for the next season that we're all going to, of whatever that looks like. We wanna get it right because we wanna thrive. We wanna thrive in life. But here's what I know is true, that if we're not careful, our hurried hustle will turn our rhythms into something that's completely ruined and we will live the rest of life constantly feeling like we are striving for the best, but never truly thriving in the best. And we wanna be able to figure out how to do that. And so what we talked about last week as we began, as we started to to look in this, with this investigative mind into what it is that you believe about God. A.W. Tozer says, whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so with that in mind, what we talked about is this idea that your view of God, it can unlock your best possible life. Your view of God can unlock your best possible life. And ultimately, that's what we all want. We all want the best possible life. No one in here would be like, I can't wait to have worse. It's gonna be awesome to wake up tomorrow and it sucks. Like, no, that's called Monday. But Monday doesn't have to be every day. We can actually experience better in life. That's what we want. And so we're gonna go after that. And the greatest part about our faith and why we're here, and if you have questions about it and trying to get your faith right, is that that's what Jesus wants for you too. Jesus offers you full life. He wants you to find more and better life than you could ever dream of. And so Peter tells us how to go and get that life, how to grow our faith to find that. And last week we talked about the seven supplements that he showed us that we can add to our faith to grow it. And here's what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. This is where we ended last week. Here's what he says. He says, the more that you grow like this with those seven supplements, with those things that you add to your faith progressively, the more that you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in other words, this is how you grow. This is how you find that best life that you want. Those are the things that you choose to hustle for. But tonight I wanna continue talking because Peter doesn't stop there. That's not the end of chapter one. And the end of chapter one kind of bleeds into chapter two because he starts to talk about what happens if you don't do these things? What actually happens to your faith? What actually happens to your life if you don't choose to grow like this? He actually says, you know, this is how you grow, and here's how he continues in verse number nine. He says, but those who fail to develop, those who choose not to, who choose not to go after those supplements, who choose not to grow their faith, those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. And I love the way that he says this because it's almost like a warning. Like, hey, if you choose not to do this, you'll become forgetful 
of, your, of the fact that Jesus has saved you from your sins, you'll start to forget these things. And I think what he's really speaking to is the truth that all of us feel. How many of you, show of hands, would say that you are a forgetful person? Show of hands. Like, yeah, I forgot even the question. That's great. Okay. Maybe you didn't raise your hand because you're like, I remember everything. All right, fine. Why don't you chill out? Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever forgotten your keys somewhere? Uh-huh. Yeah. If you're like, no, I always remember it because I got that little ringer thing where I push it and then I can't forget it. Well, the fact that you have it means you forget it. How about this one? How many of you have actually forgotten your phone somewhere? You're like, no, it's attached to my left hand at all times. That's a lie. All of us have forgotten our phone somewhere or we didn't know where we put it. That's called forgetting. Here's the best question. You ready for this? How many of you have forgotten your phone, didn't know where you put it, and then you realized it was actually in your hand the entire time? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. All right, fine, maybe it wasn't in your hand, it was in your pocket, right? It was actually on you. You're looking at it, and you're like, I don't know where it is, right? We all have a tendency to be forgetful. We all have this tendency. And see, I would say that this is something that Peter knows to be true about us. But here's what I also know is true. That while we may have the tendency to forget things, and maybe you're sitting here saying like, I never forget anything. That's like trivial stuff, a phone or keys. But the reality is there are things in your life that you probably wish you could forget. Every one of you have experienced something in your life that caused pain or suffering, that brought on remorse, brought on regret, brought on this feeling of guilt, that probably brought on a feeling of shame. We all know what that feels like. Now, I don't know if that is something that you chose to do or something that happened to you, but in some point of your life, whether it was a year ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, or last night, there are things about our life that we wish we could forget. It's just a natural part of us growing up. It's a natural part of living life. And so what what Peter is trying to talk about is, yes, there may be things that you want to forget, but there are also things that you should never forget. You should never forget them. They're the things that are true of who you are. Like, there are things you're never gonna forget. Like, I'm always gonna remember my children's names. You know what I mean? Like, I got five of them, and a lot of times I like to just call them by number. Like, hey, three, come here. Because it's just easier when they're all together or in a crowd. Uh, Whenever we text, we'll just do first letters, B, C, G, V, O. Like, it's just so much faster than writing out their names. They have names, I get it, but numbers is fun too. Right, but no, I'm gonna always remember my children's names. I'm gonna remember the look of my wife. I'm gonna remember these things that I know that aren't just trivial but are core to who I am, these identity type things. But if we're not careful, if we don't grow in our faith, if we're not actively trying to pursue this, we very carefully or we very quickly, like Peter is saying, are at the, have the capacity to forget something that's core to our identity. And I personally know this to be true because it happened to someone that's, one, that's closest to me. So growing up, I had a friend who was a little, two years younger than me. And in high school, this guy was one of my, became one of my close friends my senior year. And even though he's two years younger than me, like he was cool enough to hang with us, you know what I mean? And so my freshman year, I graduate college, I don't go to Georgia yet, I stay home to help work at that ministry that I've mentioned the last few weeks. I stay home and start working with that, and so I get to hang out with my friend a little bit more. For the sake of the story and saving his name, because you don't know him, but maybe you'll watch it one day. We'll call him Jimmy. That's not his name, but we're going to call him Jimmy. So me and Jimmy get to hang out even more, because again, he's cool enough to hang with us. So we're hanging out with Jimmy, and then I go off to Georgia. Jimmy graduates, and then he goes to college as well. He's down in Milledgeville. And when we're in college, what really happened is Jimmy became somebody who was one of my closest friends. 
He became somebody who I would go deeper with in conversations about my faith than maybe anybody else. Like you may have those people in your life that you're like, yeah, they're my person. Like whenever I'd go on trips with the boys, it was me and Jimmy and two others. Like he's part of this core group of my life. And the thing that bonded us together initially was Jesus. It was faith. I was leading a ministry when I was in high school, like this school, campus ministry, FCA, and I handed it off to him whenever I finished and he took over. And then I thought he'd like follow in my footsteps and then I'd get to do it alongside him. And whenever I would lead a ministry in college, I thought he'd be there. We would have conversations about the deepest stuff personally in our hearts and going on with our faith. He was the one person that I could probably go there with. So then by the time I graduate college and he's still there, I would even go back and hang out with him in Milledgeville. And then I get married. He's in my wedding. He's one of my groomsmen. This is one of my closest friends for a long time. And then I'll never forget, about eight months into being married, we lived in this one-bed apartment on the second floor, and he was like, hey, man, I'm in town. He was a senior in college that year. He was like, I'm in town. I'd love to come by and say hey. And I was like, yeah, dude, I hadn't seen you in months. Come on. And so he comes over, knocks on the door, let him in. Larson, my wife, isn't there. She's hanging out with a friend, so me and him are just hanging out. And one of the things I'd always ask him at the beginning was like, hey man, how are you doing? Like, I just wanna, like, let's check in. How's your heart? How's your faith? Like as lame and as like Christian as that is, we would ask that all the time. And so I asked him, man, how's your heart? How's your faith? How are you doing? And he looked at me and he said, I knew you were gonna ask that question. And I was like, uh, yeah, we've done that for years. He said, yeah, I think the whole Jesus thing is bogus. Now, he didn't say bogus. He said something that I'm not gonna say on stage. So fill it in with your brain. But he looked at me, dead in the face, completely serious. He goes, yeah, I think it's all bogus. I'm like, are you serious? Like the person that, that I've talked about this more with than anyone else, you're sitting here telling me that, that you think everything I'm building my life on is bogus? Everything that you built your life on is bogus, you would lead Bible studies. He, like, again, super cool dude. He'd call it Bible and Brew. He'd invite his friends over to have some beers and talk about the Bible that didn't know the Bible. I'm like, this guy gets it. And he's looking at me in my apartment saying, none of it's true. It's all bogus. And I, I was so caught off guard. I was so hurt. I was so confused. Honestly, I was so angry like, no, 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 you, you know what you believe. You know exactly what it is that's true. You're just choosing to forget it. Like, don't tell me it's bogus. You know right and wrong. You know what's true. And so to this day, he's still never met any of my kids. Our friendship kind of wasn't necessarily severed that day, but it just started to go two different paths. And he's no longer really a part of my life. I love him. If I see him, I give him a huge hug and we catch up. But the friendship... The foundation of the friendship was Jesus, and then he stopped. And if I could go back, if I could look at him, if I could go back and we could have a conversation before he showed up in my apartment that day, I want to look at him dead in the face and just say, man, here's, here's what I genuinely want to know. And if, and if you know it, I want you to think about it because I want you to remember. And the question I want to ask him is the question I want to talk about with you tonight. It's something I would want him to have investigated in his brain because I don't think he would have gotten to that place if he'd asked that question to himself. And maybe there's some of you tonight who you need to ask this question of yourself as well. I would wanna look at him and I would say, listen man, 
why do you believe what you believe? Like, why? See, I know what you believe, and you just told me that you think it's bogus, but I know what it is. I just want to ask you why. Why do you really believe it? And there's some of you tonight that you need to have that question asked to you. Why do you believe what you believe? Do you believe it because I'm up here telling you this or Samer has been up here for years telling you this? Someone like us? Do you believe it because it's what you've grown up in? Do you believe it because of the zip code you were born into? Do you believe it because of the exposure of church, the exposure of a friend? Do you believe it because of a circumstance? Maybe what you believe about God is based not on a positive thing but on a negative. Maybe you've got church trauma or life trauma that's made you think that God's against you or that he can't be for you, or that he must not love you. But I want to ask you why. Why is it that you believe that? Maybe you don't follow Jesus at all, and I would want to ask you why. What are the reasons of why you're choosing to say no to the offer of Jesus? Why is it that you believe what you believe? Because I think if I could have asked him that question, we could have dug down underneath the shock and the, and the awe of what he said in that moment. Why do you believe what you believe? Because when you ask yourself that question, you start to really think, do you really believe it? See, there are some of us who say we love Jesus and we put it on our profile or we put it in our bio, but really Jesus is just a bumper sticker in our life. We don't actually choose to follow him with our lifestyle even though we say we believe him. And I would look at you and I would say, why do you believe what you believe? If it's not genuine, if it's not authentic, if it's not real, why is it that you believe what you believe? And really the question, the kind of follow-up question to that is this, what is the foundation of your belief. What's the foundation? What are you building that belief on? If I looked at my friend when he showed up in my house and I asked him that question, I would be able to evaluate with him and say, you were obviously building your faith on something that wasn't sturdy. You were building your faith on something that had pressure from the outside and made it topple. You had a weak foundation of everything else that you said you believed. Now at the end of the day with my friend, what I fully believe happened is he started to live a lifestyle that was incongruent with what Jesus called him to do as a follower of Jesus, and he didn't wanna deal with the guilt of it anymore, and so he decided to go and just deal with it on his own. And even in that, I have to evaluate and say there's something wrong with the foundation of what he believes. So as we examine tonight, why do you believe what you believe. Where is your faith actually? Do a little investigating internally where you are. I wanna keep going through the book, the letter of 2 Peter, because Peter is gonna start to show us what the foundation of his faith is and his why. And as he talks through this, he's gonna do it because of something that he's seen. So we're gonna go and continue on Skip a few verses down to verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Here's what Peter says. This is Peter's foundation. This becomes the beginning of Peter's why. He says, for we were not making up clever stories. In other words, me and all the disciples and all the people that loved Jesus, that walked around with him, that spread the church. Peter is the guy that Jesus looked at at the end of his life, and he said, hey, Peter, I'm gonna start a church, and you're gonna be the rock of it. You're gonna be the foundation that I'm gonna build this entire thing on. And so Peter's saying, me and all my friends who started this thing, we were not just making up clever stories whenever we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a tall tale. This isn't fiction. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. 
I walked next to him. I've got a story that you can't argue with, that I lived life alongside Jesus. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. Get this. He says, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, he's there next to Jesus, said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice. First off, are you serious? I'm like, can I just for a second bottle that up, put it on Spotify and tell everybody, what's God sound like? It sounds like this, because Peter actually heard it. Peter heard the voice of God speaking to Jesus. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him. This isn't made up, this isn't fiction, this isn't a tall tale. I stood next to him when God said these things to him on the holy mountain. And here's how he continues next verse. He says, because of that experience. Peter would look at you and he would say, you wanna know my why? You know why I believe what I believe? Because I've got an experience with this guy named Jesus. I don't just know about him, I've grown to know him. And I think so many times in our language, we get it twisted and mixed up, this idea of knowledge and knowing. Like the English language doesn't do it right. How many of you speak Spanish? Show hands. The beautiful, incredible, romantic, wonderful language of Spanish. And if you say, I know how to say queso un poquito, that's not Spanish, all right, homeboy? No, I mean genuinely understand the language. Because there, are ver- there is a verb in the Spanish language that we would say to know. To know is a verb. But in the Spanish language, they've given it two different words. It's saber and conocer. And the two words have completely different meanings. Saber is to know something intellectually. I know that these shoes are very uncomfortable right now. How do I know that? Because it's an intellectual understanding of what I'm wearing. I know that you're wearing a red shirt, and I know that the Braves won the World Series. Holla freaking Louia. I know that the Hawks are going to win tonight. I don't know that, guys. Okay, I don't. I'm hopeful, and I don't know that. I have faith. I don't know that, right? I know my wife's name. But I also don't just know her intellectually, saber. I know her intimately, conocer. Yes, I know her name, but I also know what makes her melt. I know the things that she loves. I know the things that she hates. I know her buttons I can push. See, whenever you know someone on an intimate level, it's a completely different knowledge of knowing what a taco is. And so what Peter is saying is, I don't just know about Saber, I don't just know about, this isn't just intellectual with Jesus. I know him intimately. I've walked with him, I've seen him, I've done things alongside him, I've heard the voice of God speak to him. And so because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. And when he says by the prophets, what he means is our Old Testament. The law and the prophets, everything that happened from Genesis all the way through the book of Malachi before Jesus showed up, they continuously proclaimed and prophesied that the Messiah is coming, that God is going to redeem all that is broken through a person, through this line of people from promise of Abraham all the way to Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. And he's saying, we have confidence in the message proclaimed by all those prophets. And listen, you must pay close attention to what they wrote, to what is actually in scripture. 
for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. In other words, this has so much power when you actually grasp it, when you come to know it and it leads to not just an intellectual knowledge, but an intimate one. Because all of the Old Testament, all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus and then Jesus shows up and everything afterwards is talking about his life and pointing to his coming again. It's all about Jesus. The Bible is a unified story telling the story of Jesus. And so he's saying, I've walked alongside him and because I've walked alongside him, because of those experiences I have with him, I have even greater confidence of everything that I find to be true in those Scriptures. And he finishes by saying this. He says, above all, all these things, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture, no word that you read, none of that, no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. And this is where we're going to kind of spend the next few minutes. None of the stuff that's written in there came from anyone's own understanding or from human initiative. No, no, no. Those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. See, Peter would look at you and he would say, why is it that you believe what you believe? I believe what I believe because I've seen something happen. Peter would walk alongside Jesus. He would experience the miracles that he did, the love that he gave other people. He would, yes, listen to the messages that he had, but he'd also get to watch the miracles he did and the person that he was. And then Peter would watch as Jesus got arrested. But if you read the story of Jesus getting arrested, Peter didn't just watch. Peter was the one who let his emotions get the best of him because Peter took out a sword and went to go and try to fight one of the Roman soldiers and cut his ear off. He's probably got some pretty bad aim if all you get's an ear is all I'm saying. But he cuts his ear off and Jesus is like, no, stop it, don't do this. And so he watches Jesus get arrested. He watches Jesus go before trial six different times. He watched Jesus be tortured. He watched Jesus suffer. He watched Jesus be beaten. He watched Jesus have a cross put on his back, a giant wooden beam that he would have to carry a very long distance after having his back flayed open and never actually complain or cry or scream or beg for mercy. He would go through it anyways. He watched him walk up that hill. He watched them put nails into his hands and into his feet and raise up a cross. And he watched Jesus die. He saw it with his own eyes. But that's not why Peter would say he believes what he believes. Because a few days later, Peter sat down on the table and had a meal with the exact same person that he just watched die. Peter would look at you and say, I get that you think he's dead, but I'm telling you right now, he's not. He's fully alive and fully healed. And he would say, I listened to Jesus say things about prophesying his own death. Jesus talked about the fact that he was going to die. But Jesus also talked about the fact that he would be raised from the dead. And I love the way that Andy Stanley says it. He's like, anybody who calls their own death and resurrection and then actually pulls it off, you should probably listen to him because that's never happened before. And so Peter would look at you and say, why do I believe what I believe? Why can you believe what you can believe? You wanna know why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's it. Peter has a firsthand experience and a firsthand account of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then everything of this faith is a lie and means nothing. 
Because he's dead. And because what he said would be true would not have come true. But the problem with anybody who doubts this is that there are historical accounts from people who didn't even follow Jesus that there was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth who would actually be crucified by the Roman government. And then there were so many accounts of people who didn't even follow Jesus who would go around and say that they saw him walking among them. There are historical accounts of the fact that this happened. And so Peter would sit here and say, our faith is not false. It's not a fairy tale. This isn't wishful thinking. It is founded on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, if he said, if he did what he said he was gonna do in that, then he's also done everything he said he would do before it. And he will do everything that he said he was gonna do after it. See, without the resurrection, what we celebrate in a few days on Easter, without the resurrection, our faith is nothing. And so we find the foundation of our faith in this. The event of the resurrection is the source of all the things we believe in this faith. And without anchoring yourself to that, you're leaving yourself up to being blown around with the wind whenever somebody comes and brings something smart to you or they confuse you or they put doubts in your head or you think of doubts in your brain and you forget the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus did what he said he was gonna do, then we can probably trust him. And if he's trustworthy, then that means he's probably worth following. And if he's worth following, then that means you gotta look at what he said and you gotta evaluate it and you gotta say, maybe I gotta do this. And so really it pulls back to the question at the beginning. Why do you believe what you believe? But Peter doesn't just stop there at the end of chapter one because he keeps going on with this idea. He keeps pressing in. He keeps getting you to investigate. Why is this? What actually is the foundation of the faith that you may have? And maybe you walk in here and you're like, I don't have a foundation of faith. Then why is it that you don't have a foundation of faith? What's keeping you from that? He wants you to investigate it. He wants you to educate yourself. And so he keeps going on. This is what I love. Through the end of chapter one and then the, all of chapter two, and he starts to really investigate this question. And where do you find what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? Ultimately, because Jesus rose from the dead. But where do you find that? Where do you find that truth? Where do you find the source of that? And that is a question that I think is maybe even more important right now for you to investigate. Because here's what I know is true. The world around you and the culture that we're growing up in and your generation and my generation would probably tell you something about truth and where you find it that is completely different than what Jesus would say. Because our world would tell you that you should go and find your own truth and live it out. And that truth is essentially relative. You can have your truth and I can have my truth and we can just coexist. The problem with that is truth by definition cannot be relative. It can't. There have to be some things that are objectively true about truth. So there was one of these really difficult conversations that came up a few years back that I watched someone ask a question, this really, really smart apologetics guy, this, I mean, basically a theologian in his own right. And he asked him a question about how should the church respond to one of these really difficult things that the world and culture are saying is one way, but, but faith historically has said a different way. 
And the person answering didn't even reference the question. What he responded with is something that stuck with me. He said, you know what, let me ask you a question. I'm like, ooh, anytime you rebound a question with a question, you just like, you juked him, like, hmm, I'm smarter than you, watch out. And so he, led, he said, let me ask you a question, sir. I wanna ask you what type of a culture we live in. He said, in the world, for all time, there are only three types of cultures. He said, there are three types of cultures. The first type of a culture is a theonomous culture. Theos, meaning God, nomos, law. This type of a culture is a God-ordained law of how you live. In other words, whatever God says determines the culture's view of right and wrong. God is the one determining what it is that everyone in the culture is doing. And he said, that's a theonomous culture. And he asked the guy, he said, do we live in a theonomous culture? And the guy said, no. He said, you're right. So, so the second type of a culture is a heteronomous culture. Hetero meaning other nomos law. Someone else determines what is right and wrong for the entire culture. You see this in a lot of tribal cultures. You see this in a lot of dictatorships. You could say that you even see this sometimes, if you really stretch a little bit, in like the Roman papacy and the Roman Catholic Church. Someone else says what is right and wrong for everybody else. He said, do we live in a heteronomous culture here? And he said, no, right? You can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. Like, no, we don't live in a heteronomous culture. He said, okay, then there's only one other type of culture. An autonomous culture. Auto meaning self, nomos law. A self-ordained law of me determining what is right and wrong. Me coming up with my own version of truth, of yes and no. And he said, does that sound like the type of culture we live in? Do we live in an autonomous culture? And the guy said, yep. He said, you're right, we do. But the problem with an autonomous culture is that it can't exist. It always will fall in on itself. Because here's what happens. If we live in a world that says truth is relative and I can find my own truth and you can go find your own truth, what happens more than not, and by more than not I mean all the time, is I'm gonna believe something to be true and then you're gonna believe something else to be true. But I can't let you believe that thing to be true because I think you're wrong. And then our little cultural fascism kicks in and I just don't think that you're wrong. Now I start to think that you're not just wrong, but you're bad. There's something about you that's evil because you don't believe the same truth that I believe. So I try to get you to understand my truth, not your truth. This is called politics. <laughs> Whenever I do this, I'm now trying to tell someone else what to believe. What's that called? A heteronymous culture. So this autonomous culture idea of you find your own truth and let everyone else go find and live out their own truth, it literally can't exist. Philosophically, logically, it can't exist because it always turns in to me telling you what to do. Me believing I'm right and you're wrong. And within our faith, what he said is, we've gotta come to the grounds and the understanding and the knowledge and the surrender of saying that I don't always know what's right and wrong. I don't always know what's best. And I don't always make decisions with your best in mind. Because so many times in my life, I'm gonna make decisions that are best for me and may not be best for you. And so we have to find another source to determine our truth. We have to find another place to set the foundation for what we believe. Because if that foundation is faulty, any pressure from the outside will make it fall over. Anything, any force, any external pressure will make it fall apart. 
my friend who showed up to my apartment, one of my closest friends, his faith fell apart because the foundation was faulty. Because he started living a lifestyle that was incongruent with what Jesus said. Because he was listening to other voices and other things and he was listening to his own desire for what to do. His own thought of right and wrong. His own thought of what was best. And all his friends started saying it was okay to start doing certain things. Even though in his heart he knew it wasn't right, he started to say, yeah, okay, I'll just do them anyways. And the foundation of what he believed and the reason of why he believed it went away. And so his faith went with it. And so Peter starts to talk through this letter of the exact same thing that they faced back then that we face now. That some people are going to come to you and they're going to start to wrap their lies in this glittery gold, false and completely ridiculous idea of what truth is. They're going to start to sell it and package it as truth, but it's really fake. They're going to start to sell it as fact, but it's really fiction. He says, and because of these teachers, because of people who do this, because of people who take the words of Jesus and who he is and how you should live and what he actually says and what he actually does and how he actually views you, the people who take that and manipulate it for their own gain, these types of people, because of them, the way of truth will be slandered. It'll go away. And so it is more important than ever that in this season of life you ask yourself, why do you believe what you believe? And where do you find what you believe? Because if you find it in something that's not actually Jesus, you're not actually following Jesus. And so what I want you to do, what Peter wants you to do, and I fully believe what God wants you to do, is to actually ask yourself, why do I believe what I believe? What is it doing with my life? Do you actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Because if Jesus did everything that he promised and everything that he prophesied and everything he said he would do, that means that we need to look back at what he says and how we should live and we gotta listen. We gotta actually follow. That's what it looks like for Jesus not to just be someone that you adore or someone that's a bumper sticker or someone who's a really good moral teacher or has a really good idea of how to live and he becomes your Lord. He becomes your savior. He becomes your Messiah. Because that's what he came to do. And so because Jesus rose from the dead, we get to look at everything of scripture. We get to hold out our Bibles and say, this is the foundation of my truth. Even if I don't agree with it, even if it costs me, even if it's difficult, this wasn't meant for me to do gymnastics with, to figure out how to make it work within my thoughts. If Jesus says it, We gotta listen and we gotta follow. That's how you build a foundation of faith that is unshaken by everything else outside and around you. So what I want you to remember is this. I can believe what Jesus said because he rose from the dead. It's that simple. I can believe what Jesus said because he rose from the dead. And if I can believe what Jesus said, then I need to actually start looking at what did he actually say? And what does it mean for my life? So as you investigate, as you ask yourself questions, as you figure it out, here's some things I want you to consider this week. I want you to think about what does your lifestyle say about what you believe? What is your lifestyle? What, is your, what are your actions? What are the things that you're doing? What do they actually say about what you believe? Only you can answer that. 
Two, what is something about Jesus that you may need to be reminded of? I understand that grammatically, that's not a great sentence. I don't care. What about Jesus might you need to be reminded of? What have you forgotten? What are the things that you've heard may be truth, but you don't actually live out the truth of that? What do you need to be reminded of? And then third, if, Jesus, if, if what Jesus says is true, typo, if what Jesus says is true, but it doesn't sit well with you, I want you to ask yourself, is it still true? If what Jesus says is true, but it doesn't sit well with you, is it still true? Some things to consider this week as you navigate this idea of taking your hustle and getting it to fit within the flow of your faith. We're gonna keep this conversation going next week with chapter three, because I think it's gonna enlighten a lot of us in the way that we continue to choose to live and what we look forward to. So I'm gonna pray for us, because as I pray for us, what I wanna give you the chance to do is to think. I wanna give you a chance to feel. I wanna give you a chance to kind of breathe, because it's a lot. This idea, this, this, this mental conversation, this investigation of your faith can be a lot. So we wanna give you some space some space to feel that, some space to think, some, pa- some space to wrestle, and for some of you, some space to worship. So many times in my life, whenever I've forgotten or I feel like I'm in a funk, I feel like something's just not really clicking, something's not right, something's not as I desire it to be, one of the things that I've learned is that I just need to go back to what used to work or go back to what I've known before. And for me, it's worship. For me, it's just simply entering into the, the idea of this music, speaking to something about Jesus, when I don't feel like I have the words to say, these words of these songs can say it for me. And so what we're gonna do is go back into a time of worship for the next few minutes so that we can think about the idea of who Jesus is, of who he is to us, of why we believe, but also to, to nail down and land on the truth of the fact that he has made himself so overwhelmingly available to us that he's not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of our doubts. And just because you haven't lived with your foundation being firm yet doesn't disqualify you from figuring it out moving forward. That's called grace. And it's a truth about the gospel of Jesus is that he offers you his grace. So we're gonna step into that over the next few moments as we worship. If you want to sit and think and and pray, you can. If you want to stand and sing, you're more than invited to. I just want you to respond in the way that you would like. So I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to jump in. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us someone like Peter who had a strength, a resiliency. He had a resolve of his faith. That even when all of his circumstances were against him, even when everything was going was going wrong, even when he was arrested and in jail and waiting his death, he was able to look at you and say, but you're worth it and you're everything. And I pray that that exact same sentiment, that exact same heartbeat, that exact same posture would be the one that these students take tonight. That as they ask themselves, why is it that they believe what they believe, that you would give them the clarity and the wisdom and the discernment to know the answer to that question, but that it would draw them closer to you. Because God, we lean into your promise that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So over the next few moments, draw near to us. Be so, so close to us. We're grateful that we get to do that, that you invite us to it. So thank you for loving us first. We love you right back. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.